Hello, and welcome to the James Sheets Podcast. This podcast features the sermons and preaching messages of James Sheets, who pastored throughout West Virginia for many years. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and leave a five-star review and share a memory of James with us. Let's listen as Pastor James Sheets begins his message. Um, I appreciate it. I, I really do appreciate you, the choir. The group of people that have that kind of ability, uh, we need to take all the advantage all that we possibly can and I'm certainly glad to to, uh, to see this fine group and, and hear them I think that's great uh, after hearing them I know I don't think I can sing I think I'll just pass that up if you don't mind you know you you did an outstanding job on that how great thou art and I appreciate that this evening what I want to do is set the stage for three or four sermons that I'll preach on Sunday night in a row, provided you let me come back. I haven't heard that decision yet, you know, but on the assumption on my part that that might happen, uh, I want to turn to the book of Colossians. If you have your Bible, I hope you continue to carry them. You'll turn to the book of Colossians. We'll have our scripture from the third chapter. I'm not going to read the uh, verses as a whole, but I'm going to read them as I speak tonight. So you may want to keep your Bible open and and follow with me throughout the message. Hope you have your pen out. You might do a little underlining or make yourself some notes. I think a preaching service ought to be educational as well as, I hope, inspirational and challenging. Oh, we can get all of those aspects into to every sermon, and maybe you will learn some things that, or refresh your memory on some things that you may have forgotten. I hope that I can challenge you on some things in your daily walk with the Lord, that uh, each time as you leave the service, you will feel that uh, it was a good experience. I don't mean uh, that... Uh, you had the opportunity to be lulled to sleep. I try to keep that from happening. Just don't snore if you do, you know. But uh, I hope that uh, that won't happen, although I have uh, had a few people in my congregations who have gone to sleep, and I have even been guilty a time or two, my wife says, of doing the same thing when I'm sitting back there. But uh, we'll try to keep it lively enough. I don't apologize for uh, anything that I say, because what I say, I believe. And uh, if if you feel like maybe that I'm uh, a little bit tough at times, I'll I'll say that's just tough too, you know. I don't don't mind. Uh, I'll love you just the same, and I hope you will love me just the same. I like to, and believe it's my responsibility to preach the, the gospel as the Lord has presented it. And I would be derelict in my duty, and any preacher would be derelict in his duty if he did not point out what the Scripture has to say. I mentioned this morning that I wanted to preach tonight to those of you who claim that you have been redeemed. Those of you who have been adopted into the family of God. That's that's the, the group that I want to preach to tonight. Because I believe that we as Christian people need some good preaching. There are some things we need to hear uh, that... Uh, would benefit us, I hope, and make us more like Christ in our daily walk. 
Because I believe there is a standard of living for the Christian. Now, we are all subject to certain standards of living. In the community in which you live, and I don't know this community well, but there's an accepted standard of conduct. In the schools that you young people go to, there's an accepted standard of conduct. You may stretch that to, to its far extreme sometimes, as we all have been guilty of doing, but you know there is a standard of conduct that is acceptable. And to violate that is a violation of the rules. Well, there is a, there is a standard of conduct for the Christian as well. That which we ought to be, how we ought to act, what we ought to do, what we ought not to do. And Paul is very pointed in uh, his letter to the church at Colossae in telling them what they ought to do, not do and what they ought to do. This evening, I want us to look at a portion of what they ought not to do. And for the first time in my life, I found a church that has no clock in it. I'm glad you don't, at least it's not back here. The clock always ought to be back there, though, so the preacher can see it. Usually they put it up here so the congregation can see it, and the preacher can't. And then that creates all kinds of problems. So I'm taking off a watch so I won't go over time. I'll try to stay within uh, acceptable limits. But we are going to look here in the third chapter uh, at what Paul is saying to the Colossians on several different subjects. Tonight we're going to deal with some certain things that he says positively do not do. Uh, if we can get far enough, we will get into another series of those. Next Sunday night, we will be talking about, just a little further down the chapter, those things that he tells us to do. He says, uh, do not do and also do. Or put off, as he will use the words, and put on. On the following Sunday night, I'm going to be speaking uh, to families, particularly to husbands and wives and children, and it will even go down to uh, employers and employees as to what Paul says the responsibilities are to each other. And then we'll go on from there, but that's far enough introduction. In the third chapter of Colossians, we find these words, and I will almost always read from the King James Version. At times I might change over a little. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. That word, if, becomes an extremely important word. If. We talked this morning about being adopted into the family of God, and most of you held up your hands and said you were. Now that's why I say I want to talk to you, because you have made a commitment. You have said at some time in your life in the past, and you reaffirmed it this morning by merely lifting up your hand, you said, I have accepted Christ. Which, to put it in, in the context of this verse, you said, I have been risen with Christ. Now, to rise with Christ means that you had to be buried with him as well. You see, one of the things about the uh, rebirth is that you've got to die in order to be reborn. We have claimed that we died to our old selves and we are born again a new person. We arose with Christ a new man, a new woman, a new child of God, a new person. And so the if becomes very, very important. You see, when we came up out of the waters of baptism here or wherever, 
It was a symbol of what has taken place within the real person, within the heart, within the soul. That a new individual has arisen. You are no longer that person that you were before. Behold, all things have become new, the scripture says, and you are a new individual. And therefore, as a new person, you have a new beginning. A new beginning. Your old sins and your old ways are no longer, uh, you're no longer responsible for them. Neither are you expected to live according to those old ways, but a new beginning has taken place. Now, this does not mean that you will withdraw from society. I do not adhere at all to the fact that we're going to seek those things which are above and mean that we're going to be extremely lofty in our attitude. We're going to go around with a holier-than-thou attitude, and there's going to be a halo around our head, and we're going to be called uh, the righteous and all of those things. Listen, we're going to live in this world, but we're not going to be off this world, and there's a difference between the two. We've got our daily lives to live, but how we live our daily lives becomes extremely important. The Gadarene demoniac was a wild man, and he came and fell down before Jesus, and, and the Lord cast out of him those many devils. And when he was finally sane and clothed, he asked the Lord that he might go with him. And the Lord said to him, No, you go back home, and you tell the people at home what good things the Lord has done for you. What is he saying? You're going to have to look at life in a, in a new perspective. You're going to look at it now like God looks at it. And this is a totally different outlook. Paul says in the second verse, Set your affection, set your mind, set your love, set your heart on things that are above. Here comes the beginning of the change. We no longer will look upon the affairs of life upon other people, upon the world, in the same light that we have seen them before. What the world considers important will not be important to us. Now, what does the world consider important? If you had to pick out a word and say this is the most important thing in all the world to society in general, to your neighbors and friends, what would it be? I would suspect that way or high on that list would be the term money. I suspect another term would be prestige, and another term would be social status, and another would be power, and we could go on naming those things that the world considers important. Now, I'm not suggesting to you that you ought not make money, because you certainly ought. There are some things that you need to, to do with money that are important and, and purposeful in God's sight. I'm not suggesting that you ought not to have an acceptable position in the community where people look up to you. I'm not suggesting that you ought not be important or have a social status or have a certain amount of power. Those things are all right. It depends upon your perspective. Do you look at those things in terms of what it's going to do for you, or do you look in terms of what it's going to do for the Lord Jesus Christ? And this becomes the difference in the person who is worldly and the person who is godlike. It's his perspective, how he looks at the same subject. And so as a Christian, our getting will give way to giving. As a Christian, our ruling will give way to serving. And our avenging will give way to forgiving. You see, there's a different perspective on what we do. In the third verse, he talks about your life is hid with Christ in God. You ever wonder what on earth that means? Well, we've got to go back to the Greek a little bit to understand this. 
the Greek thought of the dead, which uh, a person now has claimed to be, you see, in Christ, the dead as hidden in the earth, cannot be seen. Now carry that over a little bit. Can you see the regenerated? Can you see the Christian? Can you see the spirit? No. You can see the evidence, but you can't see the born-again person. That's hidden in God. This is why the world can look at the Christian and he doesn't see anything that matters to him because he can't see the real person. You see, he still wants to look at you in terms of what you were. But you died. You came forth up out of the waters of baptism and appropriately uh, uh, applying that term to the real thing that took place in your heart, a new person. And the world can't see that new person. Hopefully the world will see the evidence of that new person. More correctly, I ought to say, the world will see in you the person of Jesus Christ. He will be lifted up. He will be magnified. He will be glorified. Let the beauty of Jesus be seen in you, but not your own beauty. You see the difference? You are hidden in Christ. Now, there's some good things to say about that. You ever play hide-and-seek? Of course you did. Remember when you as a child found that best place to hide that there was in the world? Nobody ever found you. You were secure. You were safe. You couldn't be found. Let me tell you, there are times in life, and I feel this keenly at times in my life, when I want to hide. You ever feel like you wanted to hide? You wanted to find a place where you were positively secure and the world couldn't get at you. That nothing was going to disturb you. Nothing was going to bother you. You could go there and cry. You could go there and shout. You could go there and draw up into that hole and feel secure that there was nothing that was going to happen to you. I've been through uh, a few serious trials in my life. I certainly am not going to deal with all those and tell you what they were. I don't know if any of you have ever had your home burned or not. We had a, a brand new home burned one time. We lost everything we had. My wife and I stood in the door of that house and cried. Have you ever, I hope you've never had that experience. I wanted to go hide somewhere and pretend it had never happened. Blot it out. I found that place in God. And he could put his arms around me. I use this simply as an illustration, and please don't feel I'm getting particularly personal. He could put his arms around me and hold me to his bosom, and I felt hidden. I was secure. Nothing could get at me at that point. This is important for every person to have a secret hiding place. That's why we have a little uh, devotional booklet called The Secret Place. What does that mean, a place where you can go? It's all yours and God's. You can hide in God. Hide in Jesus Christ. Christ is hidden in God as well, it says. And we are hidden with him in God. Now, very quickly. 
verse 4, when Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him. I'm not going to take the time to spend much time on this verse. That's, that is a complete subject in itself that perhaps sometime we'll deal with. But I want you to notice something that is extremely important for our commitment to Jesus Christ is those first few words, when Christ, who is our life. I'm not going to talk about his second coming when he shall appear and we're going to appear with him. That's something else. But Christ who is our life. You see, we don't live for ourselves. We live for Jesus Christ. Now, because of that, verse 5 and following becomes extremely important. And here gets the meat of it. And we're only going to be able to touch the, the tip of the iceberg, so to speak, tonight. In verse 5, he is saying, Now, Christian, you have committed yourself to God. You have believed in Jesus Christ. You have died to your old self and you have risen anew. Therefore, there is a standard of living that you need to understand. Now, I'm not proposing that every Christian is going to completely abide by this standard of living. Matter of fact, I'm not proposing that any of us will completely abide by it. I'm suggesting you and all of us will fail and falter on many of these things. But I am saying to you, that we need to know what the standard is, that we can pattern our lives after it and strive toward it, although we may not completely succeed in accomplishing it. In verse 5, he says, Mortify, therefore, in your members, that is, kill, that is, destroy, that is, surgically remove, if you will. That's what the word mortify means. It means to remove from you, from your person, from your being, just as if you would surgically remove it, He's saying if there is something about yourself like he is going to refer here and give us a list of in a moment, and I'll read them to you. He is saying surgically remove those things from you. Now let me tell you, he is pretty firm here. He is telling us that there are a few things that we are absolutely advised to refrain from doing as Christian people under extreme circumstances. We are not to participate. All of us at times have indeed participated, I'm sure, at least in mind and in thought of some of these things, if not in fact indeed. Look what he says they are. Fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is adultery. Now, I find it very interesting to see that he, uh, he does something here. The first group of those, with the exception of covetousness, deals with sexual sins. They all do. And then he adds to that list covetousness, which he places in the same category, surgically remove your desires, your tendencies, your urges to participate in these things as a born-again Christian. Put to death all of these things. If you will look at that list and observe them carefully, you will discover that any one of them will absolutely destroy your testimony as a Christian. I'm not going to deal with all those sexual sins. There's no point in doing that. But you think about those, but I do want us in the little bit of time we've got to look at the word covetous, which he places in the same extreme category as he does all those other sins. Covetous is the desire to have. 
covetousness is the desire to have, and I'm going to add one word to the end of it, covetousness is the desire to have more. Someone asked Nelson Rockefeller one time how much money it would take to satisfy him, and his response was just a little bit more. You and I say if we had that kind of money, we'd be absolutely satisfied. But let me tell you something. You better be careful. How much does it take to satisfy you? And you'll have to respond with him probably like I will have to respond. I would like just a little bit more. Money or prestige or power or physical possessions or you name it. And if we are so intent upon gaining material wealth for ourselves, which in itself is not bad, except as it detracts from or destroys our testimony for Jesus Christ, then it becomes a sin. Now make sure you understand what I've said. Possessions in themselves are not evil. A good bank account is not bad. A person who is a millionaire I respect. And I believe this scripture does as well. It only becomes a problem when all of the physical things of life become more important than it is to serve Jesus Christ, who is our Lord and Savior. That's when it becomes a sin. That's when Paul says, surgically remove it from you. I've always wondered if the Lord thought that I was coveting money because he never seemed to give me any. I don't know. Probably that's right. If I had it, I couldn't use it if I did have it. I don't know about you. I probably would, would uh, go down the drain with it. Let me tell you something. Covetousness is like pouring water in a bucket that has a hole in it. There's never any satisfying. If you covet money, the day will come when you will steal. Mark my word. Listen to what I say. If you covet, the day will come when you will steal. If you desire prestige and a name for yourself, the day will come when your evil ambition will lead you to do things that are not right with the Lord. If you want power, the day will come when you will be a tyrant. If you want power, you will treat your family with tyranny. You will be nothing but a boss who shows no love in his reaction. There's nothing wrong with being a boss. It's how you use that uh, responsibility, and that power that becomes the evil. You see, he says covetousness is idolatry. Notice what he says, covetousness is idolatry. Covetousness is the worship of an idol. A man with the name Hule, of whom I have read on a few occasions, says that idolatry is an attempt to use God for man's purpose. Listen to his words. Idolatry is an attempt to use God for man's purpose. I heard a sermon title one time that I thought was pretty good until I thought about it a little bit. The sermon title out on the board out front of the church said, Put God to Work for You. You know, I'm always looking for sermon ideas, and I saw that, and I hey, that's pretty good. I'm going to use that. And I got to thinking about it, and you know that's blasphemy? You can't put God to work for you. You work for God. Seek God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added unto you, but it's a total different perspective. You do what's right in God's sight, 
and you'll be working for God to the point that you will receive blessings in return. But don't think that you can do something that will put God to work for you. He's not on your payroll. We're on His. And there's a whole different outlook. We're on His payroll. I have a little bit of problem with some of the TV preachers who advocate, and I have seen this just recently, one that, that said, uh, was reading some letters from some people who have been appealing for money, and they read this one letter that said, in essence, this, that the, the listener sent $1,000 to a contribution to the particular organization. You might know what organization this is, and that's beside the point. And uh, they read his letter on the air, and he responded and said, I, gave, I sent $1,000 to you last week, and I got $6,528.10 today in the mail that I didn't expect. Now, maybe he did. And he meant God may have sent it to him. But the inference from the TV preacher was, you send me $1,000 and you'll get a similar story. Don't you believe that? You worship and serve God. And if part of that worship and serving God and your part is to send a thousand dollars or to do whatever you want to do, that is fine and God will bless you for your faithfulness. But don't expect that you're going to put God on your payroll for a six-fold return on your money. If that were true, let me tell you, I'd put all my money right out here on the table right tonight if I thought that I was going to get six-fold return tomorrow morning. Wouldn't you? It doesn't work that way, folks. That's idolatry. The scripture says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. I have just begun to scratch the surface as to what Paul is saying that we ought to do and not to do. There's another section we'll not get tonight. We'll do it next Sunday night. He says to put off some things, anger, uh, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication, all those things. We'll talk about those next Sunday night. And then some things that we ought to do to put on. But we'll have to conclude at that point because we do have the Lord's Supper that we want to participate in. My point tonight, and my point for the next several nights, Sunday nights, will be for us to look at God's Word and see what He says to us as a church, what we ought to be, what our standard of living ought to be. After we have outlined all this, and as, as we do it, I hope you will compare your life to what the Lord says your life ought to be. If you uh, disagree with any of the things I say, that's fine. You, you can talk to me about it afterward. That's all right. But you better look closely at, at, at the word of the Lord and see if he maybe is talking to you and if he's talking. I'll have to look and see if he's talking to me about how our life ought to, ought to be. May I emphasize, I am not at all suggesting, never will I suggest, that a Christian will always not do these things. No, we're human, we're, we're in the flesh, and we're going to fail and falter. What I'm saying is that we've got to establish a pattern. We've got to establish a standard. We've got to know what we are expected to do. And what I want to outline for you is I want to tell you on these next few Sunday nights what God expects of us as his children. Now, whether we live up to it or not is another story, but this is what God expects. Shall we pray? Our Father, we're grateful for your word. 
We're grateful that you have loved us enough to cause us to reflect upon our relationship to you and your word. We come now, our Father, before you to participate in the partaking of the Lord's Supper. And you have established and ordained that we as your children might do. You have not asked us to be perfect as we come before you now. You have simply asked us to be your children. And so we come in our weaknesses, we come in our frailties. We come, our Father, we pray, confessing our sins before thee, acknowledging those things that are wrong, those things that are not right in our lives that we ought to correct. And Father, I'm praying for this total congregation, and I pray that every member of this congregation will unite with me in these words as we offer them unto thee and make their prayer this prayer that we ask you to forgive us our sins, to show us your way, and to help us walk in your path. Bless us as we participate in this service, which you have commanded us to perform, that we might remember your death on the cross of Calvary to save us from our sins. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing a hymn. And so on the last verse of this hymn, we're going to ask the deacons to come up and take their place in preparation for the Lord's Supper. What number are we singing? 183, 182. Thank you for listening to today's message. If you like what you hear, hit the subscribe button. You'll receive automatic notifications and downloads when a new message is added to the podcast. Also, please leave a five-star review and take the opportunity to share stories, memories, and appreciation for James Sheets and how God used him to impact your life. If you'd like to know why and how this podcast got started, check out our first episode. Lastly, if you want to donate to help offset the cost of operating this podcast, you'll find a link to our PayPal account in the podcast description. Thank you for listening, and remember to trust in God for today and for all of your tomorrows.